You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on the book, The Quest for Sustainable Business, An Epic Journey in Search of Corporate Responsibility. Access and Justice, Purpose Out of Chaos, Colours in the Dust. After Thailand, where I also spent a lovely week in Koi Samui, attending my sister's wedding and Cambodia, where I took a short tour of Angkor Wat with my parents, I headed for India. My friend, fellow CSR Nottingham alumnus and author of the chapter on India for the World Guide to CSR, Bimal Arora, had arranged a packed itinerary for me. My first few days in India were all work and no play, but rewarding nevertheless. The evening that I arrived in Mumbai, I interviewed the founder, Vinay Somani, and researcher Tanya Mahajan of Karma Yog, a CSR promotion organization. The following day, I traveled to Raipur to deliver a talk on the future of CSR, hosted by the Confederation of Indian Industry. The flight back to Mumbai was via Bhopal, which felt somehow poignant given the number of times I have used the 1984 Bhopal disaster as a case study in my talks and writing. We should never forget that, in what is still described as the world's worst industrial disaster, an explosion at Union Carbide's pesticide plant in Bhopal released a cloud of methyl isocyanate killing at least 2,000 and injuring 50,000 people. Travelling to Delhi, I did a workshop on CSR around the world, hosted by the national power supplier, NTPC. Several power cuts during my stay at their guesthouse seemed ironic, but just highlights the scale of the challenges India faces. Next was a workshop on CSR marketing and PR, hosted by NASCOM, as well as talks for ArcelorMittal, the University of Delhi, the Indian Institute for Foreign Trade and the Business and Community Foundation. In Chennai, I did a session for the Institute for Financial Management and Research on new directions in CSR and ended the itinerary with a trip to Pune, where I delivered a workshop on CSR in developing countries at Gentile School of Business and Economics. It was my first visit to India, and I didn't get the assault on the senses that I had expected. Other than the heat, it was 43 degrees Celsius during the day and 30 at night, the highest temperature of April in 52 years. Poverty was everywhere in evidence, but nowhere near as overwhelming or pervasive as I had expected. Perhaps I'm just accustomed to slums and scenes of hand-to-mouth existence, having grown up in South Africa and travelled extensively in developing countries. What was more noticeable was the traffic. Not only are the roads swarming with cows, bicycles, bull carts, rickshaws, auto rickshaws, taxis, cars, buses and trucks, but there appear to be no rules of the road other than taking the gap. Traffic lanes, stop signs and traffic lights have no meaning. Hooting is compulsory. Many cars and trucks even have signs saying, Horn OK Please, painted on their bumpers. Somehow, the absence of rules makes drivers more alert and aware. So in a chaotic way, it works. 
sort of. Shining through the dust and smog in Delhi are iridescent colours of women's saris, brightly painted trucks and temples, shrines, gods and goddesses. I find this fascinating, that the hottest, driest and often poorest places in the world are also the most colourful. Perhaps it is compensation for a harsh and bland environment, or perhaps it is simply the richness of indigenous cultures. There is also a real sense of diversity and dynamism among the people of India, constantly busy and bustling, wheeling and dealing, in animated discussion, struggling to make themselves seen and heard amidst the crowd, manoeuvring, manipulating, engaging the cut and thrust of survival. What is also remarkable is that people and animals mix and move freely together on the streets and pavements, through waste dumps and in markets. It is a mobile morass of life that is unmanageable and incredible. Based on my short trip, I formed a number of impressions on sustainable business. First, as expected, CSR is still largely philanthropic, building on long and proud traditions from family empires like the Tatars and concepts like Gandhi's trusteeship. Yet we do see government playing a very active role. On the one hand, they guarantee a 100 days of work each year for each of India's 60 million rural households, which is amazing. But then they also require all public companies to set aside 2% of net profits for CSR programs, which is, in my view misguided. Now there is a proposal to extend this mandatory CSR to private companies. This is essentially just an added tax and should not be called sustainable business. In my view, governments should focus on effective regulation of the issues that sustainable business is trying to address, whether that be biodiversity loss, labor conditions, climate change, transparency, or whatever rather than regulating sustainable business activities per se. Regulating sustainable business directly simply creates bureaucracy, stifles innovation and invites corruption. A little world. A more positive trend is the social entrepreneurs who are popping up all around India. Among the most inspiring is Anurag Gupta the founder of A Little World, which provides high-tech innovations for the rural poor in India, including microbanking, lighting, media and sanitation. I had a chance to interview Gupta and he explains how biometrics and LED technology is being used to serve the poor. I wrote up the story more fully in my book The Age of Responsibility and Bimal Arora also has published it as a case study but I will share the highlights here. Essentially, Gupta has designed a system of rural banking that allows a mini-branch, comprising one woman working from her home, to use a mobile phone and biometric scanner to take a customer's voice imprint, photograph and fingerprints, thus enabling them to open a basic bank account within two days. The phone holds up to 50,000 customer records, and the mini-branch acts on behalf of big national banks. This is no mean feat in a country where, according to the Governor of the Reserve Bank of India, only 40% of the population have a bank account, 
10% have life insurance coverage and less than 1% have non-life insurance. Furthermore, a mere 5.2% of Indian villages have bank branches. Four years after its launch, when I interviewed Gupta, a little world was on the tipping point of serious scalability, with 11,000 microbank branches operating in all states of India and serving 5.5 million customers. Part of the reason for its success has been Gupta's relentless pursuit of efficiency and low-cost options, so that today each microbank branch costs less than $85 a month to run and customers are only charged around 5 rupees or 10 cents a month to use the bank's services. Gupta expected a little world to become the largest microbanking system in the world within six months and pending capital injection of around $60 million to have set up in 150,000 locations in India over the coming two to three years. Believe it or not, Gupta was just getting started. He sees the branch network as an enabler to deliver all kinds of other essential services to India's rural poor. Already he has innovated rechargeable LED light boxes to replace polluting and hazardous kerosene lamps, as well as enhancement to wood or cow dung burning stoves. Using a fan that halves cooking time, halves fuel requirements, and almost eliminates the poisonous smoke. Future innovations include water filters, bicycles, televisions, spectacles, radios, medicines, and textbooks. To make all these products affordable, Gupta plans to use a lease purchase model, whereby costs are divided into weekly installments for 6, 12, 18, or 24 months, depending on the product. So, for example, a rural villager pays just a few rupees, for one week's use of a rechargeable LED lamp. At the end of the week, they return it and pay the next week's installment for a fully charged LED light box replacement. Using a similar approach, villagers will also be able to buy communal toilets with monthly installments of just 20 rupees or 40 cents for a period of 5 to 10 years. A Little World's vision remains ambitious to touch a billion people through innovative technologies and alliances at the bottom of the pyramid for delivering multiple financial and other services at the lowest cost through mainstream financial and other institutions. Having spent a little time with Gupta, I would not bet against his inspiring vision becoming a reality. A Little World is a testimony to Gupta's creativity and to the power of using innovation not only in technology, but also in partnerships and business models to tackle some of the society's most intractable social challenges. Aligned to social enterprises like these is the power of social activism. I came across a great example in the form of the aforementioned karmayog.org, which has created an online platform that allows citizens to publicly report and presumably embarrass agents of corruption, such as officials asking them for bribes. It is also used to pool NGO resources during times of crisis, such as flooding, and to share CSR ratings that have been conducted on Indian companies. The other positive sign from India is the trend of inclusive business, where bigger companies like Tata are designing products and services 
to cater for poor customers at the bottom of the pyramid, which in India is just called the market. The Tata Nano, a small eco-efficient car for $2,500, was a case in point even though it didn't last. What's more encouraging is to see that these products are not being accepted without question. In one of my workshops, we had a raging debate about whether it was a good thing to have every Indian driving a car, whether it was a nano or not. Greener is not always better. Later, my attention returned to India during a research project I did for Cambridge University in preparation for their State of Sustainability Leadership publication. One of the interviews I conducted was with Dr. Emma Maldsley, a university senior lecturer in the geography department who's particularly interested in how India's growing middle classes experience environmental change. She wants to know what impacts these changes have on the poor and marginalized sections of society and thus the implications for environmental politics in India. I asked her what evidence there is in India of rising public interest or concern with sustainability. In terms of public interest, Maudsley said, poorer people in India have always been acutely aware of sustainability issues, not necessarily framed in an environmental way, but from the basis of trying to defend biomass-dependent livelihoods, fishing, agroforestry, small-scale agriculture and so on. In terms of more urban, educated populations, there has been a rather elite concern with wildlife and conservation, but often at the expense of poorer, rural people's access to resources. Similarly, forest management has traditionally been tilted towards managing for national needs and industry, rather than local and subsistence needs. The ordinary middle classes have traditionally displayed little or no direct concern with sustainability. However, this is changing to some extent, partly as a result of education and the media, and partly due to growing environmental problems like air pollution. Such concern, though, doesn't necessarily translate into socially just or progressive environmentalism. While there are progressive organizations and individuals, in general, middle-class environmental attitudes tend to be rather anti-poor and authoritarian, blaming unsustainability on a growing population and poverty, rather than also thinking about wealth and consumption. This critical perspective is in evidence throughout Maudsley's work. For example, she questions the so-called environmental Kuznets curve, a model which argues that greater economic growth is positively correlated with reduced pollution. She sums up the Kuznets hypothesis as follows. For many politicians, policymakers and citizens in low-income countries, the message is clear. Developed countries went through their phase of dirty industrialization, became wealthy and only then could afford to clean up. Developing countries such as India, therefore, argue that they have the right to industrialize. They acknowledge that this may result in environmental degradation in the short term, but hold that these problems will eventually be addressed when the country has become wealthy. 
Moreover, according to technological optimists, leapfrogging would help them tunnel through the worst phase of environmental degradation as industrialization gets underway. Maudsley is skeptical about whether the environmental Kuznets curve constitutes a universally achievable or indeed desirable model. She points out that not all pollutants follow this pattern. For example, carbon dioxide has continued to rise with economic growth. And that one of the reasons the West has followed the curve in some respects is simply the shift towards the service sector, which changes the geographical distribution of environmental degradation. In other words, polluting production moves offshore to emerging markets. Furthermore, even if the environmental degradation associated with rising economic growth will eventually decline, it may be too late to reverse it completely. Delhi's uneven development. Maudsley recognizes many of these tensions and debates in India's capital city, Delhi. There has been a huge drive towards the idea of making Delhi a world-class city. One element of this is the campaign for a so-called Clean Green Delhi. Initiatives include the massive project to retune all public transport to run on compressed natural gas and relocate polluting industries away from the centre. Some elements of air pollution have significantly improved. Other aspects of this drive include slum demolitions and investment in new transport infrastructure largely aimed at car drivers and individuals who can afford to travel on the new metro system. Branding events like the Commonwealth Games are meant to highlight Delhi's global status as a desirable city. Maudsley believes that while pride in the city and support for its agenda are widespread and some environmental benefits have certainly been achieved, we should not lose sight of the deeply regressive nature of much of the process. Slums and informal settlements have been demolished even when they have been legal, while malls and elite housing apartments have been allowed to be constructed illegally. Poorer people have lost their livelihoods as hawkers and street vendors, and small-scale manufacturing has been driven out of the city. The Delhi government and the Supreme Court have actively sought to marginalize and exclude these populations from their vision of a new Delhi. This pattern of social injustice is reflected in the way Delhi is tackling its air pollution problems. The policies have been critiqued for impacting badly on the poor. Small polluting industries were relocated, for example, with little or no compensation for owners or workers. Also for only displacing pollution rather than reducing it. Older, non-natural gas vehicles were sold to other city transport fleets, while the industries were relocated rather than reformed. And for re representing a middle-class priority, rather than the most pressing need of the poor, which is clean, available water. Looking at the issue of water, Maudsley is similarly critical. Building on the work of a PhD student of hers, Yaffa Trulove, she draws attention to the fact that the poor are often criminalized for water theft. Estimates indicate that as much as 50% of Delhi's water is unaccounted for in official meter readings and thus wasted. 
While the authorities turn a blind eye to middle and upper class illegality, this often consists of the falsification of meter readings and technologies that can enhance water amounts extracted from already legal connections or from illegal unregistered groundwater sources through tub and bore wells. Even the much lauded Bagidari system of citizen participation in governance suffers from a structural bias towards wealthier groups since the scheme is limited to authorized colonies and not the unauthorized colonies and slum areas in which the majority of Delhi's poor inhabitants reside. Maudsley concludes that the main sustainability leadership lesson we can learn from India is not to lose sight of social justice in the pursuit of environmental improvement. The pursuit of profitable environmental policies, technologies and change is desirable if we're to move towards greater sustainability, but the political and social nature of their impacts must be recognized. Green does not automatically mean good. There will always be winners and losers, but there is a real danger in India, at least, that the drive towards greater sustainability will have some regressive social outcomes. In light of my own experiences and research, I believe India is certainly a space to watch on sustainable business, and its progress is far from being a foregone conclusion. Whereas there is a sense of order and control in China's great transition, India is far more chaotic and unmanaged or unmanageable. It is almost as if there is a grand experiment in sustainable business, democratic, messy, ad hoc Indian style versus controlled, managed, sanctioned Chinese style. Which will prevail is a question for future historians. I think it's too soon to place bets on either. If we're lucky, both will succeed in their own way.